I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rivals, the show about music, beefs, and feuds, and long-simmering resentments between musicians. I'm Steve. And I'm Jordan. And it's appropriate that we conclude our three-part epic on the Eagles with a boatload of lawsuits. Today, we're going to focus on David Geffen, the music industry barracuda who helped launch the band with his stable of Laurel Canyon acts in the early 70s. And later on, he does battle not only with the Eagles, but also his own protege, Irving Azoff, who swooped in and smashed the band from his control, leading to decades of animosity. Yeah, you know, it says a lot about the Eagles that we know the names of so many of their managers. <laughs> and I think that's because like the Eagles were as much a business as they were a superstar rock band. Now, I think that's true of all superstar rock bands, but the Eagles really didn't do anything to hide their business side. Like when you watch the movie that we've referenced many, many times in this series, the 2013 documentary, The History of the Eagles, you immediately notice that like David Geffen and Irving Azoff are prominently featured. David Geffen especially is one of the best and most colorful talking heads in that movie. Like whenever he's on camera, I get really excited because I know he's about to blow somebody out of the water with a pithy put down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's the best. I mean, Geffen is truly one of the most fascinating figures in music because he has one of those quintessential American dream stories. You know, I mean, this poor dyslexic kid from Brooklyn wants to make it to the entertainment industry. So he works his way up literally from the mailroom. Within a few years, he's a millionaire. And for the last, I think, 20 years, he's been a billionaire. And he did it by being the meanest, toughest, shrewdest guy on the block, aside from perhaps Irving Azoff. Uh, getting back to the Eagles, I think both men were what the band needed at that specific moment in time. Geffen was perfect to ingratiate them with the hip Laurel Canyon scene in the first half of the decade. And Azoff was the wild hotel trashing arena rock manager they needed for the Hotel California era. And the personality clashes, to say nothing of the legal clashes, are just endlessly amusing to me. 
Yeah, you know, Dan Henley once referred to Irving Azoff as Satan, and he meant it as a compliment. <laughs> and you know, an eagle's compliment. It, but I think in his heart, Henley looks at David Geffen as like an actual devil because those guys had a very public feud that didn't end well. Of course, nothing ever ends well in the Eagles story, but that is very, very good for us on the Rivals podcast. You know, Jordan, I'm, I'm sad that we finally reached the third and concluding installment of this series, but all good things must come to an end, and I can't wait to dive into the dirty business dealings of the Eagles. So, without further ado, let's get into this mess. Geffen was born in Brooklyn and came from a long line of deal makers. His mother apparently used to walk into Bloomingdale's and try to haggle with the store clerks, which is not that kind of place. It got to the point where they'd roll their eyes whenever she'd walk in. It's great. Uh, she raised her boy for greatness, calling him King David. And uh, <laughs> they, they were not well off when he was growing up. And she would say to him, you better learn to love to work because we have no money and you're going to be working for the rest of your life. And I think those two, King David and you're going to be working the rest of your life because we have no money. I think those two things fused in David's mind and that became the Geffen that we know and love. That's what fuels him. Because uh, he was this scrawny kid. He was a bit nerdy. And, you know, he knew he was never going to be the quarterback or the lead singer in any kind of band. So this, coupled with his mother's workaholic streak, helped fuel his ambition. And he would say in later years, I'm really just a boy from Brooklyn who wishes he was six feet tall with blonde hair and blue eyes. Now, after high school, King David moves west to the land of tall, blonde people with blue eyes, California. <laughs> and when he gets there, you know, he has this idea that he wants to be in movies. But, of course, he doesn't have movie star looks or movie star talent. So, instead, he goes into artist management. And he learns early on basically, like, how to be a liar and, like, to get ahead by being underhanded. And it's hilarious, like, when you read, like, magazine articles about David Geffen or you watch documentaries – how often, like, this aspect of his background is, like, romanticized and, like, even <laughs> praised. It's, like, quaint. It's portrayed as, like, quaint. Yeah, it's, like, he's not really criticized for this. It's always, like, oh, wow, isn't it cute, like, that he learned how to be a huge liar when he was young. You know, the story that I think is, like, the most famous from this period is that, as you said, you know, he applied for a job in the mailroom at the William Morris Agency, which was the big talent agency at that time. And on his job application, he lied about graduating from UCLA. Now, soon after this, a colleague of Geffen's was fired for lying on his resume. So Geffen starts to worry, obviously. He knows that William Morris at some point is going to do a background check on him. They're going to ask UCLA for his transcripts. And he can't let the agency find out about his lie. So Geffen decides that he's going to come into work early for the next six months. And his goal is basically to like try to intercept the letter that he knows is coming from UCLA at some point. Well, one morning, the letter finally arrives, and David Geffen, like, steams it open like he's, like, in some, like, sitcom or something. I just picture, like, you know, like a, you know, an episode of, like, Growing Pains, like, where Mike Seaver is, like, trying to cover up <laughs> one of his scams from Alan Thick or something. He steams open this letter, and, of course, the letter inside says that we've never heard of David Geffen. David Geffen takes that letter, and he replaces it with a letter that says that they do know who he is and that you shouldn't be worried that he didn't lie on his application. So this is a very elaborate scheme, but it shows, I think, the level of commitment that David Geffen had to his own career and also his lack of scruples. You know, he said later on in an interview that he said, like, did I have a problem with lying to get the job? None whatsoever. And in fact, he said that he learned that like lying was like a big part of his job. Like he said, he looked around at the agents there and he said, the epiphany for me at William Morris was realizing these people bullshit on the phone. I can bullshit on the phone too. So with that, 
he was off. And he really wanted to be in the movies, but he was so young that none of the film people were really going to take him seriously. And so ultimately he was persuaded to move into rock and roll because that's where all the young people were. And he signed acts like Jesse Colin Young and most amusingly to me, the Young Bloods, who had the song, you know, come on people now, smile on your brother, everybody get together, come and love one another right now. That classic hippie anthem about peace and love and all living together in harmony. I just love how the band that was given that platform was David fucking Geffen. Probably as far <laughs> away from that kind of like, you know, peace and love <laughs> ethic that you could possibly get. I really enjoy that. But it's perfect. He did have a tender side. Um, when he saw Laura Nairo, the, the incredible singer-songwriter, bomb at the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967, he took her aside and bonded with her just sort of fragile artistic self and became her partner rather than her boss. He took her under his wing and, and signed her to be her agent at first. This sort of paternal streak would endear him to all sorts of sensitive artistic people around L.A. before his inner shark drove them away. Uh, he ultimately quit the William Morris Agency and started his own with Laura Nairo as his first client. Yeah, an important thing about David Geffen, I think, is that while he has this reputation for being like this cold-hearted and even like unscrupulous businessman, I think he was also like a, a legitimate music fan. Like embracing someone like Laura Nero to me suggests that he was honestly like engaged with her music. You know, like like Laura Nero was this really talented artist, but she was hardly like a conventional star. Like as you said, he saw her bomb at Monterey Pop. It would have been very easy to just like let her slide out of the music business at this point. But, you know, he could see that she was this idiosyncratic talent that needed someone like David Geffen in her corner in order to be a success. And I think that also explains, you know, along with that sensitivity, that paternal aspect that you were talking about before, I think like that genuine music fandom is like why artists were also drawn to him. You know, like, yeah, he was a shark, but he was a shark with like legitimately good taste and talent. Yeah, I think Neil Young would later say what it would endeared him to Geffen was Geffen said that he loved the song On the Way Home, the Buffalo Springfield song. I mean, he knew the music. It wasn't just like he knew that these guys want to make him a lot of money. He genuinely loved them. Geffen had... A bit of a rivalry at this stage with another young agent named Elliot Roberts, who was managing Joni Mitchell. And there was a bit of a, like, your girl, my girl thing between, you know, Joni and Laura. Uh, but when Roberts was recruited to untangle Crosby, Stills, and Nash's solo contracts so they could record together, he called on David Geffen for help because Geffen had a, a better head for these kind of contractual things. Uh, and soon they formed their own management team, Geffen Roberts, which sort of became the official management team of the, the Laurel Canyon crowd. I mean, they... All the, those incredible artists, the Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young crew, Joni Mitchell, like we mentioned, Jackson Brown, uh, so many folks. It was the place you wanted to be. It was like a sort of alternative company where where contracts didn't exist. It was all, you know, it was the, the, the hippie ethic of like, it's all about your word. Well, Geffen in later years would say, I think it was in a documentary about his life, he would say, oh yeah, if they didn't want to be with us, who wanted them? So as far as he was concerned... Uh, it was less about sort of the hippie side. That was more uh, Elliot Roberts, and he was more just like, they want to be here? Fine, screw them. Uh, it was, and their dynamic, Elliot Roberts and Geffen, it was total good cop, bad cop. I mean, Roberts was the house hippie, and Geffen was working the phones and ensuring that these insensitive artist types were financially set for life. It was a really great combo. Now, at this time, Dave Geffen was like hanging out a lot at the Troubadour looking for new talent, basically, that they could sign up to the Elliott Roberts Agency. And, you know, we've talked a lot about the Troubadour in this series. And, of course, you know, it was this bar that was like the hub of like the L.A. rock scene in the late 60s and early 70s. And it's really like where like a lot of the acts associated with David Geffen and Elliott Roberts started. That bar also reminds me of like one of my favorite David Geffen documentary appearances 
<laughs> which takes place in this like really great BBC movie called uh, From the Birds to the Eagles. Like you can find that on YouTube sometimes. You might have to do like a bit of a Google search for it, but it is a great documentary about the Laurel Canyon scene and how it changed as the 70s progressed. And there's a scene in the movie like where David Geffen is uh, telling the story about how he wanted to book this folk singer named David Blue at the Troubadour, and the club's owner, Doug Weston, refused. And Geffen says, if you don't book him, I'll start my own club. And Weston says, you think you can start your own club? And Geffen says, a club? Yeah, I think I can start a club. And <laughs> that is dead on, by the way. The way he says it is great. Like, he's so indignant that, like, someone would think that he couldn't operate a club. It's like, who do you think I am? I'm David Geffen. Of course I can run a club. Doug Weston apparently says, fuck you to David Geffen and hangs up the phone, which is the wrong thing to say to David Geffen. Like, you do not want to get on David Geffen's bad side because he then proceeds to actually start his own club, which is called the Roxy. And then that becomes the new hip club in L.A. in the back half of the 70s. This story to me, it's kind of similar to, I think, what happened a few years earlier with Asylum Records, which was the record label that David Geffen ends up starting. Because the genesis of that is that David Geffen discovered this singer-songwriter, very handsome guy named Jackson Brown that he believed in. And he actually ended up taking him to Atlantic Records. And the head of that label, very famous guy named Ahmet Erdogan, turned him down. And he instead encouraged David Geffen to start his own label. And Erdogan basically said, this guy can make you a lot of money. I have a lot of money, so why don't you start a label so you can have a lot of money? Which... (laughs) Sound advice. That's a great quote. I've been waiting my whole life for someone to say something like that to me. Like, I wish I could walk into (laughs) Ahmed Erdogan's office and he could say that, you know, I have a lot of money. Now you should make a lot of money. So just like in the, uh, the nightclub example, Geffen goes out. He starts his own business and creates Asylum Records, which becomes immediately, I feel like, the hippest record label of the early 1970s. The lineup for Asylum included Joni Mitchell, Jackson Brown, Linda Ronstadt. Tom Waits, Judy Sill, and of course, the Eagles. But I think the artist that he was really counting on being on this label was his like original love in terms of like a manager-client relationship, and that was Laura Nero. And Laura actually did not sign with him. She signed with Columbia, and this was just like a terrible event for David Geffen. He's talked in later years about how he really felt hurt by this. And you kind of feel like, okay, this represents the point where David Geffen is going full-on shark. Like, if there was any heart in him before this, it's been broken, and now he's never going to let an artist break his heart again. So it's really full steam ahead on, like, David Geffen being wholly self-interested at this point. And Jackson Brown, as you mentioned, plays a crucial role in the story, not only as the catalyst for Asylum Records, but he also tells Geffen about another group of guys who lived upstairs from him, and they had a band called Long Branch Penny Whistle. And... Jackson Brown said, oh, yeah, these guys are pretty good. You should check them out. And that was Glenn Fry and J.D. Souther. Uh, Geffen liked the musicians, and he liked their sounds so much that he bought their recording tract out from their, the small label that they were on, Amos Records, uh, out of his own pocket. And he thought J.D. could hack it as a solo guy, but he tells Glenn Fry, you know, you really need a band. So Glenn teams up with Don Henley and ultimately uh, Randy Miser and Bernie Ledden to become the Eagles. The Eagles, particularly Don Henley and Glenn Fry were part of this sort of new breed of rock and roll band who understood the business side and they demanded, you know, what they thought was their fair share of the financial action. This was years after, you know, in the late 50s and early 60s when artists were getting ripped off left, right, and center. They knew what was up and they knew it was entitled to them. And this was attractive to Geffen, at least at first. He knew that he was going to be fighting with these artists to, you know, actually 
make a profit. He knew that they were going to really lean into the business side. And Geffen would say years later, the Eagles weren't going to fail. It was a group that was put together with clear intentions. So it wasn't going to be like years later with Neil Young when he's wrestling with Neil to try to make a commercial product. He knew that the Eagles were on his side from that standpoint, and they were going to together make a lot of money. It's interesting when the four musicians did meet with Geffen in his very fancy office, uh, all three of the musicians deferred to the the more experienced and more direct Bernie Ledden. Ledden made the pitch, so you want us or not? Which I thought was, I'm, sh- I'm sure Geffen appreciated that that bluntness. Almost despite Bernie's bluster, Gwen would later admit that, you know, they would have done anything to sign on, on Geffen's roster. I mean, as we said earlier, that was the place to be at this time. Yeah, and the appeal of, of Asylum Records, again, was that it was this label that was very artist-oriented, that, you know, the, the name of the label was supposed to suggest, you know, a sanctuary, that this was a place that you could go and you would be protected from the usual pressures that, like, bands have to deal with when they're first getting started in their music career. And, you know, Geffen, his sales pitch to the Eagles was basically like, you worry about the music and I'll take care of everything else. And there's this story that's been told about how apparently, like, Geffen, Henley, and Fry were in a sauna together. And, <laughs> like, which is great. I mean, I, I'm just picturing this right now. These three guys are in a sauna together. And, like, Geffen's pitch to them was basically like, this company will never be bigger than as many people as you can fit in this sauna. And uh, it's a very 70s rock metaphor, by the way. I love the idea of, like, likening the size of your company to a sauna. You know, I, I just picture like hairy guys with like gold chains sweating a lot and, you know, just doing business in, in this environment. It's a very funny and also it's like slightly like gross image to me. But again, the idea here was that this was not a typical record label, that like you could make the records that you would want to make. And yeah, like they all wanted to be successful. But I think, again, like there was that combination of like Geffen being this great businessman, but also having an appreciation for the art. Like the artists that he was bringing onto his label, at least at this time, were all people that he personally liked. And I think that belief in the Eagles music, as well as his thinking that these guys should actually be commercially successful really led Geffen like to give the Eagles, I think the hands-on treatment early on in their career. And we've talked about this in our previous episodes, but like Geffen was instrumental in shipping the Eagles off to Aspen before they made their first record to basically like get their act together, you know, into, into, you know, gel as a band and, and get a good repertoire going. He was also a big part in bringing Glenn Johns into, into the fold. You know, we've talked in our previous episodes about how Glenn Johns initially wasn't that impressed by the Eagles and didn't want to work with them. But Geffen was the person that was really kind of pushing to get Glenn Johns into the band. And that really ended up paying off on the first Eagles record came out in 1972, the self-titled debut, which spawned those three big hits that we've talked about in other episodes, Take It Easy, Witchy Woman, and Peaceful Easy Feeling, and really got the Eagles going in their career. And Geffen really did a lot for them, and he went to bat for them. When they wanted to make their mature concept record, Desperado, he let the band have their way and agreed to bankroll this like really kind of expensive undertaking, including all the artwork with all the elaborate Western costumes and stuff. And he, he even he helped the band find this common look, this Western outlaw theme. Geffen saw the band as like sort of this mystical Americana type group that he thought was just perfect for branding. He thought it was it was just a, a great marketing opportunity, really, because it just sort of symbolized this American sense of freedom. But around the same time, the band were starting to really become more disillusioned with Geffen. They would say that Henley would say we were, this album was us rebelling against the music business, not society. And there's a famous back cover when the band are all 
looking like dead outlaws all strung up at the feet. And then behind them are standing all these guys dressed as the law who, you know, in, in the concept of the album art, look like they just like took them down. And it's all their their industry people. It's all their managers. And Glenn Johns is there too. So it's definitely, you can sense that kind of resentment setting in around Desperado. And they were annoyed with Geffen because they thought he was giving too much attention to other groups, one of them being America, which they, the band America, which they thought was sort of in their lane, this Americana-loving harmony group, and also Poco, who were both signed to Asylum without the Eagles' consent. And they thought that this was hitting a little too close to them and kind of like their lane was getting infringed on. And when Desperado tanked, Glenn Johns blamed Geffen, saying he was too distracted trying to sign Bob Dylan, uh, which would have been you know, a massive coup at the time, than actually focusing on his clients. So you have the Eagles starting to feel discontent with David Geffen, and then you have David Geffen also feeling discontent with being a manager at this time. You know, and he's talked about how he was basically like protecting his artists, and this is uh, the t- a term that he used, a river of shit, you know, from coming down <laughs> on them. Like he felt like he was like the bulwark from that river of shit consuming his clients. And, you know, he was around like watching all these great artists basically succumb to like drugs and paranoia as like the early 70s became the mid 70s. And he really felt like he was like their babysitter. And I think he got a little burned out with it. So this was around the time that like Warners became interested in buying Asylum Records. And when they made an offer, David Geffen basically just jumped at the chance. He got offered $2 million in cash and $5 million in Warner stock, plus the opportunity to stay on at the label as president. So this is like a great deal for David Geffen. But the artists on his label were not pleased that Geffen did this. He basically broke his sauna promise. You know, (laughs) this was many more people than could even fit in like the world's biggest sauna at this point. And the Eagles were especially vocal about like feeling displeased because, you know, they wanted to be on Asylum because they thought it was like a different kind of record label. They thought they would be protected from, you know, the sort of normal corporate pressures that like most artists would have to deal with. And, you know, and Don Henley later said, you know, Asylum was an artist oriented label for about a minute. And then the big money showed up. And then after that, pretty much everything changed. So they were upset about that. And I think this was also around the time that they also, I think, realized that they didn't know as much about business as they thought they did. Like they started looking at their deal and realizing, like a lot of bands, that like they were kind of getting ripped off by David Geffen. So they're starting to reach a breaking point, basically, in their relationship with him. Yeah, not only did they feel betrayed, but they realized that their hands were tied. I mean, Geffen was their manager, their publisher, and record company. So there was no, it was just no negotiation, no phone call, no warning. I mean, he owned them. I mean, they woke up, and according to what I've read, they just read about it in the paper. Uh, and Henley would say to be sold like a commodity, like pork belly or soybeans, didn't sit right. And Geffen offered no words of apology whatsoever. I mean, he was fond of telling his acts, we are not partners. He didn't care about this blatant conflict of interest that he was managing a band that was signed to his own label and he owned their publishing. He didn't care at all. Yeah, I guess he like got like half the money basically from like the Eagles publishing as he did from like all of his artists. But like around this time, like he actually gave his half of Jackson Brown's publishing back to Jackson uh, because he felt that he owed Jackson Brown because Jackson Brown you know, had been like one of his early artists. He had like hooked Geffen up with the Eagles and like other artists. So, you know, as a sign of goodwill, he gave Jackson Brown all this publishing. But unfortunately for David Geffen, Jackson Brown told the Eagles about this and uh, they were not happy about it because it's like, why does he get half of his publishing back? We should get all of our publishing as well. Whereas I think David Geffen, like when he heard about this, he just felt like the Eagles were being ungrateful, you know, because again, as we said before, like David Geffen was instrumental and like setting up the Eagles, he had kind of positioned them 
to be like this big American rock band. And uh, without him, I think it's fair, like when you look at it from his perspective, that without Geffen, I don't know if the Eagles would have been as successful. On the other hand, I don't know if Geffen could have sold Asylum Records for as much money as he did were it not for the success of the Eagles, who like were one of the biggest acts on the label at this time. So yeah, we're in a pretty bad place right now in terms of like David Geffen's relationship with the Eagles. We're going to take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor before we get to more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the Ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. As you said earlier, when he sold Asylum, at this point, he just didn't want to be in the, in the management business anymore. He was just tired of dealing with these people. Henley would say in the uh, History of the Eagles documentary, uh, Geffen was just tired of the responsibility and burden of making people happy. 
And this opens the door for a young, ambitious Geffen Roberts employee named Irving Azoff. Yes, and Irving Azoff has so many great nicknames. He's known as Big Shorty. He's known as the Poison Dwarf. My favorite. He's known just as Satan. He's been called Satan before. Uh, you know, it kind of reminds me of like that part in Walk Hard, like how uh, Dewey Cox has so many <laughs> nicknames. Irving Azoff is second only to Dewey Cox in terms of uh, colorful nicknames. Uh, Irving Azoff got his start in the Midwest. He was a uh, manager of the band REO Speedwagon, who was like one of the big middle American acts at that time. Uh, when he started to have some success with that band, he decided that it was time to leave the Midwest and move out to the West Coast. And when he was out there, he started getting involved in management. He worked with the artist Dan Fogelberg. He got hooked up with Joe Walsh. He's moving up the ladder in the rock scene, and that brings him into the orbit of like the Geffen Roberts world. And uh, once he gets into that company, he realizes right away that the Eagles are not happy. And because Irving Azoff, like David Geffen, is a shark and he can smell blood in the water, he zeroes in on the Eagles and he realizes that there's an opportunity here for him to uh, maybe usurp David Geffen. And I think the difference here, and you spoke to this earlier, that, you know, I think David Geffen was good for the Eagles early on because, again, he was more of a paternal figure. You know, he could take this band under its wing and really nurture them when they were a baby band and they needed to sort of grow and figure out who they were. But, you know, by the mid-70s, the Eagles were a fully-fledged entity. And I think that really opened the door for someone like Irving Azoff, who was, you know, closer to the age of the guys in the band. And he was also a guy that, like, would actually, like, party with the band. Like, there's a story about David Geffen that I love where, like, he had uh, tickets to go to Woodstock. But uh, he was watching, like, footage of the festival with Joni Mitchell on television, and he decided that it was too dirty. So, like, he <laughs> didn't go to Woodstock for that reason. Irving Azoff, however, like, loved to get dirty. Like, he was a guy who would actually, like, get in the mix with people like Joe Walsh and, like, trash hotel rooms and, like, mess around with groupies and do all the things that rock stars get to do. And I feel like he probably really relished that because if he wasn't a rock manager, like there's no way Irving Azoff could have done any of that stuff. Again, he was the poison dwarf. You know, I feel like he's like the uh, the nerdy guy that somehow gets accepted by the cool kid clique, which allows him to do all these sort of wonderful things that under normal circumstances he would never get to do. My favorite Irving Azoff story is when he was at some really fancy restaurant in Los Angeles or Beverly Hills, Spago's or something like that. And he thought that the service was lacking and he wasn't getting the attention that he was due. So he set his menu on fire and just waved it around. I feel like that image of him in a fancy restaurant holding a flaming menu aloft is just to me what I think of when I think of Irving Azoff. Yeah, just like, you know, brazen asshole behavior, basically, <laughs> you know, which is like in a way kind of lovable in this context. Like I have a weakness for like knowingly sleazy music figures, you know, <laughs> uh, like people in the music business who like don't make any apologies to, for just being the absolute worst. Like there's something kind of attractive like about that for me. You know, like I wouldn't want them in my life, but if they're in a movie or if I'm reading about them, I just find it irresistible. And yeah, like Irving Azoff and David Geffen are like at the top of like the knowing sleazebag music industry list. And once Geffen sells Asylum, and starts to back away from management, Irving just starts to fill this power vacuum in the Eagles' life and giving, gives them the attention that they sought, and he alerts them to the numerous conflicts of interest in their Geffen Roberts Asylum Records legal quagmire. And so eventually he founds his own management firm, Frontline, which became basically to the second half of the 70s what Geffen Roberts was to the first. They signed Jimmy Buffett, Chicago, Steely Dan, Boz Skaggs. 
And his first order of business as the Eagles manager is to get the Eagles back their publishing. And in doing so, he takes Geffen and Warner Brothers to court, uh, alleging conflict of interest, and he sought some $10 million in damages. And uh, Geffen claimed the suit was a, quote, bullshit issue designed to extract a new deal out of Warner's. And he said that he, he gave Henley the half that he'd been owed in the first place after buying out you know, his early record contract when he first became his manager in the early 70s. It took two years of legal headaches. Uh, Warner's eventually settled out of court, and the Eagles got their copyrights. Uh, I think at this point, Geffen just mostly wanted to be rid of the band. Geffen would later say, Irving Azoff went about his career in a way that I didn't approve of. He thought it was good to create distance between the clients and the record companies. He created a sense of paranoia. And I always resented the fact that he was responsible for two of the only three lawsuits I've ever had in my life. One with the Eagles and one with Don Henley. It's amazing it was only three. I know, exactly. That seems like a low number. I would have like put it at like 30 at least with David Geffen. But yeah, this is now the period like where there's like open animosity between David Geffen in the Eagles camp. But something then happens that like, the Eagles are initially upset about, but it ends up being just a huge boon for their career, which is uh, David Geffen, who, again, he's at Warner's now, and he decides that he wants to put out a greatest hits record for the Eagles. And, you know, you look at it at the time, and it was kind of like a strange move to do this because the Eagles, you know, they'd only been around for like, you know, like three years. They had like four albums to their credit. They had just put out like their most successful album up to that point, which was one of these nights in 1975. It's not really like a moment that you would expect for like a greatest hits record to come out. Normally, that is like at the end of a band's career, not in the middle. And I think for the Eagles, that's why they took offense to this. You know, I think artists in general kind of dread when their greatest hits record comes out because I think they take it as a sign that they're on their way out the door. But I think for the Eagles especially, you know, it, it was a warranted feeling like, you know, we don't need the greatest hits treatment at this point. Besides, you know, we believe in the sanctity of our albums. We want people to revisit Desperado and One of These Nights and On the Border. But Geffen goes forward with the Greatest Hits record anyway. It comes out in 1976. It's, of course, called Their Greatest Hits, 1971 to 75. And look, we've talked about it on this show, but like this is one of the biggest albums of all time. It was actually certified the best-selling record of the 20th century. It sold more copies than Thriller. You know, just a huge success, and it really set up the Eagles as they were getting ready to put out Hotel California. It's like once they put out that record in conjunction with this Greatest Hits record, it really just sent the Eagles into a, a whole new stratosphere where, again, this was a band that for, I think, 18 months was selling one million records per month, you know, between Hotel California and this Greatest Hits record. I have to say, too, that, like, you know, I'm an album purist myself, so I tend to avoid Greatest Hits records as a rule. Because I think albums tend to stand better on their own. But I revisited their greatest hits for this series. And I got to say that it is extremely well assembled. Like the way that it's sequenced, I think, is really smart. Like it's not just in chronological order. Like it's actually structured in terms of flow. And I don't know how much input Geffen had on that. But like I really think that like their greatest hits is like probably better than any Eagles album. Like with a lot of greatest hits record, you always feel like, oh, I miss this deep cut. Yeah, I, yeah, like I miss these kind of other songs that weren't hits. I never get that feeling listening to the greatest hits record. Like I feel like, oh, this is all you really need from the Eagles. <laughs> so kind of against their will, Geffen gave the Eagles like this great gift. This is just one of the many reasons why you should never question David Geffen in a matter of, of music business. I mean, 
So after he he tosses off the best-selling album of the 20th century, uh, in the late 70s, when the Eagles are going through their Hotel California renaissance, uh, Geffen is actually backed away from the music industry to pursue his longtime dream in films, in the film industry. And it's sort of an ill-fated venture, and it's made even worse by this freak false cancer diagnosis. And for a few years at the end of the 70s, he believed he was about to die, which still blows my mind that that was able to happen. Uh, I I think in around 1980, he learned that it was a false positive test and he was not going to die. And soon after, he gets back into rock and roll and he founds Geffen Records and immediately starts pursuing huge name artists, John Lennon, Elton John, Joni Mitchell, uh, and another Geffen's Roberts mate, Neil Young. And this ultimately led to the third of Geffen's allegedly three lawsuits. Uh, And it's possibly my favorite of the three. Can we get a fact check on that three, by the way? I, right. I, yeah. I, I still I still feel like David Geffen's lying here. There's got to be like another dozen lawsuits against David Geffen that were buried at some point. For, for sake of this episode, we'll, we'll cap it at three. Um, it's 1981, and Neil Young gets into a fight with Reprise Records for not promoting Reactor to his satisfaction. He also wanted it released on a triangle-shaped album, I suppose, for his, per his request. I don't really know why. Uh, oh, so wow. But Neil Young, always the best. Right. <laughs> Yeah, we're back in Neil Young country. Welcome, everybody. So he ends up leaving his label of 13 years over this reactor squabble. Uh, And Geffen's in the process of starting his new label, and he offered Neil total control, uh, which is what something Neil desperately needs at all times. Uh, Despite the fact that Elliot Roberts had gotten him an even bigger deal at RCA, Neil went with Geffen because he wanted this control. And it seemed like a really obvious choice, considering that Geffen was his manager, Elliot Roberts' friend and longtime partner, um, and early on, Geffen said all the right things. I mean, and as, as Elliot Roberts would later say, Neil's not concerned with selling large numbers of records. He's concerned with making records he's pleased with. Unfortunately, they're not always commercial from the record company's point of view, but David Geffen relates to that. And he did relate to that, to a point. Yeah, you know, the thing I said before about David Geffen being a music fan, like, I feel like that really like, came back to haunt him like in the early 80s, because he was signing all these like huge name artists that like he I think he was personally a fan of. You know, I think he loved Neil Young, obviously a fan of John Lennon and Elton John and Joni Mitchell. But like these artists like were no longer like in the prime of their career. Like if you look at Geffen Records, like in like the later 80s going into the 90s, you know, they had huge success with like Guns N' Roses and Aerosmith and Nirvana. And it was basically because like the label started signing bands that Geffen personally didn't care for, but he knew would sell a lot of records. And I wonder like to what degree he learned that lesson, like from this Neil Young uh, debacle that he was about to get into. You know, there was like a famous article at the time where uh, there was a joke in there. They said, what's the difference between Geffen Records and the Titanic? And uh, the punchline is the Titanic had better bands. Um, which amazing. And apparently like that was like fed to a journalist by Irving Azoff, which is like pretty hilarious. If that's true, you know, I really don't think the problem is that the artists were bad on Geffen. Again, they just weren't really at a point in their careers where they were selling a lot of records. And in the case of Neil Young, I mean, he wasn't even really trying, I think to make commercial records at this time. And it really kind of reached a peak of sorts, uh, with the record trans, which came out in 1982, and I'm actually like a fan of this record. It's it's very strange, but I think it's a pretty clearly like personal record. And I think it has like a real emotional resonance because of that. Like, you know, it, it was inspired by Neil Young's son, Ben, who had a cerebral palsy and he couldn't speak. And uh, Neil was helping his son with therapy at the time to try to help him with his speech. And those therapy sessions inspired the record, which is this very sort of like heavy electronic record 
where Neil is speaking like through a vocoder. It sounds like a robot wearing flannel, essentially, on this album. <laughs> and, you know, David Geffen, he's expecting Neil Young to be making records like Harvest and After the Gold Rush and you know, you mentioned how Geffen loves the song all, like On the Way Home, like all these beautiful kind of folky ballads that Neil Young was writing in the 70s. And trans is definitely not that. So, uh, yeah, Geffen was not happy when uh, Neil Young turned in this album. And he also wasn't thrilled with Neil's proposed follow-up, which was like a country album called Old Ways. And Geffen more or less said he wanted some rock and roll and no more of this craft work shit. And Neil said, okay, you want some rock and roll? I'll give you some rock and roll. And the result was Everybody's Rockin', which, despite being sort of warmly received when it was initially released, also tanked. Yeah, can we just clarify that, like, um, that Everybody's Rockin', it's not like a Crazy Horse record. It's like Neil Young doing, like, kind of like 50s rockabilly-type music. Yeah. And... Like, to me, like, he was basically trolling David Geffen, I think, at this point. Oh, totally. It's like, oh, yeah, like, you want a rock and roll record? I'll give you this, like, corny pastiche music that really has nothing to do with what I do. Right. And it also tanked, so Geffen sued him. He'd given Neil Young a million dollars apiece for these two weird albums that nobody wanted. And, and he really felt, he took it personally. He felt that Neil was intentionally giving him substandard material, more or less, to just screw with him. Elliot Roberts, in an interview years later, would say that from Geffen's point of view, it's like, Neil Young can make Harvest 2 anytime he wants. Why won't he make it for me? He just, he really took it personally. Meanwhile, as you said earlier, Geffen is completely unaware that, that Neil is managing treatment for his son's health concerns and just has other things on his plate. Roberts is trying to make peace between the two, but there's nothing he can do to keep Geffen and Neil Young from colliding. And in November of 1983, Neil was served with papers requesting damages in excess of $3.3 million dollars terming trans and everybody's rock and quote, not commercially or musically characteristic of Young's previous recordings. And Neil, of course, responded in a very Neil-like way. Uh, he'd say, they paid for me. They didn't pay for me to do something, <laughs> which is incredible. That's an incredible view from his perspective. Um, for a time, he thought that this whole lawsuit was funny until he realized that he needed money and he wasn't able to record because this lawsuit was suing him. So he filed a countersuit and the music press really painted Geffen as the villain. I think R.E.M. refused to sign with Geffen a few years later, and they specifically mentioned this lawsuit with Neil as the reason. And Neil loved it. This was like the best press he'd gotten in years and the most press he'd done in years. And he would say that this lawsuit was better than a Grammy for him. <laughs> so, you know, we're going on this Neil Young tangent, I think, just to illustrate how much had changed really with David Geffen from like the early 70s to the early 80s. You know, as we talked about before, when David Geffen uh, was doing Asylum Records, he was really known as this like artist-friendly manager and label head, you know, someone who was creating a sanctuary for artists to create music away from the normal corporate pressures that like other artists would have to deal with. And you flash forward a decade later, and now he's the epitome of like the you know unscrupulous record head who will like pressure artists into making what he you know called Harvest Two, you know, a sequel to a successful record that uh, Neil Young had already made. This relates now to Don Henley's relationship with David Geffen in the 1980s, and it's kind of crazy to me that these two guys hooked up again, considering like how like poorly their relationship ended in the mid 70s. But like you know, Don Henley was at a point in his career where he put out his first solo record in 1982, Can't Stand Still, and it did pretty well, but he was upset that that record didn't get what he felt was sufficient promotion. So David Geffen actually like courted Don Henley, asking him if he would sign to Geffen Records, and, and Henley would say later that like 
you know, David used the same pickup lines. You know how much I care about you, all that stuff. And, and Henley admitted, like, I bought it a second time. So in 1984, Don Henley puts out his first record on Geffen Records, which is Building the Perfect Beast. Huge record, lots of hits, including The Boys of Summer, which... Jordan inexplicably hates, and all she wants to do is dance, Sunset Hate Grill. Hate too. Record goes multi-platinum. But, you know, there's trouble in paradise. Don Henley inevitably starts to complain that he feels that now David Geffen is not promoting his record enough. And he ends up putting out The End of the Innocence in 1989. That's a big hit, too. But he's still feeling like he has to fight for budgets for music videos. He has to fight over artwork for his albums. And it's just not really working out well for him. So, like, by the early 90s, Don Henley is starting to feel tempted by an offer from EMI to leave Geffen Records and to sign with that label. The problem for Henley is that he still had two albums left on his contract at the time. So this leads to a big fight with David Geffen. Geffen actually sues Don Henley for breach of contract for $30 million. And Henley counters by saying that there's like this old studio era, like contract loophole, basically that like if you are signed with an entertainment company for seven years, the contract expires after seven years. I don't know if that's actually true, but this ends up being a legal argument that goes on for years and years and years. And uh, it gets pretty like brutal. Like at one point, like Geffen deposes Don Henley's wife who like has MS and like makes her travel like uh, from Texas to Los Angeles and like asks her a bunch of questions. And like, she doesn't really know anything about the business dealing. So like that gets under Don Henley's skin. And I mean, this is like some of my favorite parts of like the Eagles documentary, because like this is like where David Geffen like gets really like angry about Don Henley. Like at one point he says, by nature, he's a malcontent. He's always been a malcontent. And that's just life, <laughs> which is great. But then and this is my favorite quote, maybe in the whole movie, uh, which is saying a lot because I have many favorite quotes from the history of the Eagles. But like he's talking about uh, Irving Azoff, because I think at, at some point, like doesn't I think Henley like countersues him at some point. Like, they're just, like, lobbying lawsuits back and forth. And Geffen says, and he says this in the documentary, he says that he told Irving Azoff, I'd sooner die than let you fuck me. <laughs> Which is just He's incredible. going full Geffen. Yeah, awesome. So, um, basically, I think they ended up resolving this because this was around the time that the Eagles were going to get back together. So, I think the agreement was that they would put out a greatest hits record for Don Henley. And then, didn't Geffen get a piece of Hell Freezes Over, like that reunion record? Yeah, I think it might have even been on Geffen, I think. That's incredible to me. Like, after all of that, David Geffen got to put out Hell Freezes Over, which ended up being a huge success. So, like, after all of that legal wrangling... David Geffen still managed to get, like, millions more dollars out of the Eagles. It's fair to say, I can't think of a time when he hasn't won. Geffen seems to always win. My favorite part of this whole saga is also just, regardless of Henley, Geffen and Azoff had their own tiff all through the 80s. I mean, I really think it was Azoff that fed the uh, the journalist that line about uh, the difference between Geffen Records and the Titanic, is that Titanic had better bands. I mean, they, they, they had this great little, like, caddy thing in the press for the whole decade. Uh, during Geffen's movie studio detour in the late 70s, Azov pretty much supplanted him as the most feared music industry figure in Hollywood. And he added to his legend by, you know, trashing hotel rooms, like we mentioned, and lighting that menu on fire at that restaurant. On another occasion, he had a messenger deliver a live boa constrictor to a lawyer that he was feuding with, which is amazing. It was out, he had it delivered to this guy on his 40th birthday. Uh, with a that included an unkind note about his wife. So really, you know, he, he's a terrifying man. And the Eagles were effectively fine with this. I mean, during the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction, they famously said of, of Irving, he may be Satan, but he's our Satan, 
And like we said at the top of the episode, that's a compliment coming from them. But uh, but even Geffen was taken aback by his business approach. And there he was interviewed for a, uh, a, a 1990 music business expose called Hitman, a uh, great book. Geffen said that Azoff is devilish. And that's interesting on some level, but not nearly as interesting as intelligence or charm or wit or real true ability. He thinks that in order to be powerful and important, you have to fuck with people or frighten them or be awful to them, which I find unacceptable behavior. Oh, yes. And I think that's <laughs> hilarious coming from David Geffen. Yes, yes, David Geffen doesn't think it's right to be feared uh, in the music industry. He's taking a stand against that. <laughs> One wrinkle in this, like, you know, sidebar with Geffen and, and Azov has to do with, like, Azov's stint at MCA Records because he ended up, like, taking over, like, the the head job at that label in 1983. And it was at a time where MCA was like in like the doldrums financially. And Azop basically like rescued the label. Like he ended up basically gutting most of the artist roster, you know, clearing out all this dead wood that, you know, they weren't selling records anymore. And he kind of gradually like built this record label back up and, uh, you know, had a great run there. And then by the end of the eighties, he ended up like going to Warner brothers to like start his own label called giant records. So you think like, wow, this is like a great triumph for Irving Azoff. He's like turned around this other record label. Now he gets to start his own label and he's like making millions of dollars in the meantime. But uh, there's like this theory that like David Geffen was like engineering this whole thing that like he got Irving Azoff to leave MCA because MCA was the label that ended up buying Geffen Records. And he knew that like if Irving Azoff were there, you know, he would have never given David Geffen hundreds of millions of dollars for his label. But like somehow Geffen pulled off this like Machiavellian like maneuver that he could get like Azoff out of MCA and then get someone else in there who like would buy Geffen. I mean, I don't know if that's even possible, but again, this is David Geffen. Like if anyone could do that, like he could do that. So I don't know. I don't know what you think about that. Like if he actually, if you think he actually pulled that off. Oh, I absolutely choose to believe it. <laughs> I, I'm terrified of David Geffen just doing this show right now. <laughs> like that he would somehow hear this and has, has bugs in this. I mean, I, yeah, I, I absolutely have no doubt in my mind that he somehow engineered that or maneuvered that. Uh, and it made him obscenely rich. I think Geffen was sold for something like $550 million worth of stock. And uh, by 1995, it made him a billionaire. And yes. Irving Azoff, it's worth noting, is also obscenely rich. Yeah, they're both rich. They're both guys. I picture them like uh, Michael Corleone at the end of The Godfather <laughs> Part Two. you know, like where he's like killed all of his enemies. <laughs> He's like murdered his brother. He's like rich and powerful, but he's just like sitting alone in that chair, you know, looking forlorn. Like you feel like these guys, like they were all about winning, but like in the end, like how happy are they really deep down? My sense is that like when you have people that are like that ambitious, you know, you can't ever be happy because you're always going to be striving for something else. Like the thing that drives ambition is dissatisfaction with your current place in life. And uh, to me, like, this is like a great way to end our Eagles episode because there's something very Eaglesy about that. That idea that you can win and be hugely successful and in the end still be a miserable SOB. All right, hang on. We'll be right back with more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. 
They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. We've now reached the part of our episode where we give the pro side of each part of the rivalry. Let's talk about David Geffen first. Um, Look, I mean, I think David Geffen is clearly like one of the great rock managers of all time. And uh, along with, you know, again, he's a cold-hearted businessman. He learned how to lie early on. But I also think that he had, like, a genuine affection for artists. And he had really good taste. And, like, certainly in the early 70s, that taste did him very well. He associated with, I think, some of the best artists in Los Angeles at that time. And Asylum Records really was, I think, a, a great label for that era. And also, he's just, like, one of my favorite people to see in a documentary being interviewed. Like, You would think a man as successful and powerful as David Geffen would maybe be like more diplomatic or politically correct in like in a documentary. But like he's not like he (laughs) lays it all out like he has these grudges that he's held for decades. And like he's not shy about like just going after people 
that did him wrong like in the 70s or 80s. And I love that about him. Again, if you see David Geffen in a documentary, get a bowl of popcorn because it's going to be a great show. He lacks any sense of joy whenever he's on camera. You'd think that David Geffen at this stage, with all he's done and the billions of dollars in the bank, there would be, he would just let some of that stuff go. But you're right. It's still, you see that flash in his eyes that he's just as pissed as he was 40, 50 years earlier. And it's, you're right. That's one of the things I love about him. I, and I think that, like I said at the top of the episode, I think Geffen was the perfect manager for the Eagles at the start of their career. I mean, he was the gatekeeper, I think, in a lot of ways to the whole Laurel Canyon musical clubhouse. And by teaming with someone who had that level of power, it gave the Eagles a really unprecedented amount of, of leverage in the industry. Um, I think that the big studio systems and the sort of cigar-chomping managers of the early 60s had given away to these more, you know, like I'll call them the sauna organizations, these sort of more egalitarian, hippie-like businesses that were operating under the guise of almost like a hippie commune type thing. And I think the Eagles and Geffen both knew which way the winds were blowing, and they knew that rock was about to become an even bigger business than it had been in the 60s, and they really leaned into it. I mean, there wasn't like Crosby, Stills, and Nash who were more concerned about, you know, about integrity or um, reputation among their peers. They were fine with it being a business. So I think that they were bonded by this mutual shared interest uh, with Geffen giving them all kinds of leeway with advances and creative freedom and securing them Glenn Johns. And it worked really great until business interests diverged. So if we go over to the pro-Eagles and I guess Irving Azoff side, I mean, look, I think it's clear that the Eagles were probably right to separate from Geffen when they did. You know, they could see that David Geffen, for as much you know care as he had given to the early part of their career, he was in a way kind of ripping them off. Like the, the Eagles did not have a very good deal and they had reached a point in their career like where they could negotiate and move on and, and make more money than they did early on. And, you know, Irving Azoff to me, you know, he's not as cool as David Geffen. Like, again, like I, when I see Irving Azoff in, in uh, documentaries, he is more businesslike. He's a little bit more laid back. He doesn't have that like Satan side that he seems to have in his business dealings, but he was much more of like a rock and roll guy. You know, he was partying with the bands. He was trashing hotel rooms. It seemed again, as, as you were saying before, it seemed like he was like the right guy for like that part of the Eagles career. You know, basically, like, Irving Azoff, to me, he's like Jack Nicholson in A Few Good Men. Like, you might not like him, <laughs> but, like, if he's your manager, you want him on that wall. You need him on that wall. He's the Satan that you don't want to face and you wish was on your side. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I always thought that Irving Azoff was like Geffen if Geffen just did a shitload of cocaine. I mean, Geffen, <laughs> right. in, in my opinion, Geffen ultimately wanted to control an empire. You know, he's King David. Whereas I always thought Irving Azoff liked to control people. And I think that was the difference between them. I mean, Geffen bailed on artist management at the earliest opportunity, whereas Azoff ended up going back to artist management after his lengthy spell as a label chief. I always thought that was really interesting. Uh, you know, without someone as attentive as Irving at the end, I think that the Eagles could have floundered, almost like the Beatles after the death of Brian Epstein. I think in the end, he out-Geffened Geffen, of, or at least of all the Geffen acolytes. But of course not Geffen himself. You will never out-Geffen the Geffen. So when we look at all these guys together, you know, I'll go back to something I said at the top of the episode, which is that, you know, for most bands, we have no idea who the managers are. We don't care because, you know, rock managers for the most part are like pretty boring. They're business types, you know, they're, they're, they're supposed to like bleed into the background and keep the focus on the artists. But the Eagles story is so rich and chaotic and crazy and uh, has so many like, you know, great, bastard characters in it that like we want to hear about the managers we want to hear about the money men behind the scenes 
And, you know, people like David Geffen and Irving Azoff, they just add another layer of enjoyment for, like, talking about this band. You know, like, I'm glad that these guys uh, ultimately are as big a bastards as they are, because if they weren't, they just wouldn't belong in the story of the Eagles. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I have to wonder if, if the Eagles behemoth was just sort of too unwieldy and just chaotic in their in their inner workings to weather not only that insane level of success and musical industry changes of the 70s, but just I almost feel like two separate sets of management is what they needed to extend their life as a band. You know, I mean, Geffen provided that ignition, but Azoff kept them going in the long run, or at least as long as their intra-band hatred would allow. Ah, uh, see, I like how you slipped a little pun there at the end. I appreciate Thank you. that. I tried. You know, I, I have to say I'm a little choked up right now because I've had so much fun talking about the Eagles. And this series has just been like one long, hard road out of Eden. Uh, but <laughs> we're finally at the end, and I'm a little sad about that. But, you know, there's always more feuds and beefs to talk about, Jordan. So that's the silver lining I'm looking at right now. And I, I can't wait to get into more rivalries with you. And we'll be back next week with another episode where we talk about beefs, feuds, and long simmering resentments. See you then. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Sean Titone and Noel Brown. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. The producer is Joel Hatstadt. I'm Jordan Runtog. And I'm Stephen Hyden. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 